This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions, either called in or emailed. You can email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at net, Or you can call us again locally. It's uh, the 877-EXCHANGE, and that number is 877-WAGP980. Or the 843 exchange, beyond the toll-free number, it's just 843-525-1859. If you do call in live here in this December, meet the pastor, excuse me, Bible line, we're happy for you to go on the air. Or if you prefer, you can simply dictate your question and we'll receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Well, you gave it away, Pastor. It is December, and a very timely question has just come in. As you well know, the uh, latest stimulus bill has passed Congress, is headed towards the president's desk, and a pastor from North Carolina wants to know, what do you think of the current stimulus check the government is supplying for families? Well, the the bill is very, very much involved, and it involves a lot of things that aren't always helpful, in my view, or biblical and really offensive to God. Uh, forget the family money, money for just a moment. Let's just remember that we're, we're talking about 6,000 pages in this bill. How many people do you think actually read it? So whenever there's an opportunity to you know, give away a lot of money. Every lobbyist in the country comes and they're interested in getting their portion for their cause and whatever it may be. Let me just share a couple things. Um, I took a screenshot this morning when I was up at 6 a.m. and I was listening to Fox News and they said, oh, here's some things that they're going to include. $10 million for uh, Pakistan gender programs. Oh, that's really nice. $10 million for gender programs in Pakistan. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Funds for statue gender equality. Okay, I guess we have too many male statues out there, so we need to buy some female uh, statues. Hey, look, I'm not uh, afraid or opposed, obviously, to honoring women. We should. But is this the need of the hour? Uh, then another uh, $193 million for new cars for all the HIV aid workers. Uh, $40 million is going to go to that conservative bastion of entertainment, the Kennedy Center. And then $1.5 million for the Appropriations Committee for the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. That basically talks about how we should allow gay and transgender people to uh, have their lifestyle elevated to something that's moral. Uh, And on and on and on and on it goes. Um, Here's the thing. 
uh, there, there are people, obviously, that are in real need. And those are the people, if anyone, that should be helped. Um, the government, when they shut things down, uh, they create problems. You know, I feel bad for the tens of thousands of restaurants that have already permanently closed and people who've put their life savings into that investment and they're trying to do things reasonably and and yet they're being shut down by some governors. I feel even worse for those churches that took the money. Uh, there are, I hope you know, tens of thousands of churches and religious institutions that took the money in round one and I'm assuming in round two again. Joyce Meyer took $5 million. Uh, Joel Olstein took $4 million. And then I read like Elevation Church. That doesn't surprise me. Stephen Furtick, he's all over the map theologically. I was really disappointed with Summit Church, the president of the SPC, uh, J.D. Greer, who took his millions, um, not to mention Oak Cliff Bible Church and really surprising Shadow Mountain Community Church. Um, You know, those are churches that uh, they should be prepared. They shouldn't be going to the world or to the government to supply their needs. Uh, God has never invited us to go to the world to get our money. Uh, We are to look to him. We as churches should look to him to supply. And so when I think about, um, you know, money to families who are unemployed, and I I get that, uh, I don't need the $1,200 they're going to send me. I'm employed. So why should I get $1,200? Uh, we're talking about it in staff meeting. You know, if you're married and you got four children, you'll get uh, $1,200 for you and your wife and then another $600 for each of your four children. And, hey, we're all gainfully employed. Why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we giving a money away needlessly? That's not a healthy thing. Look, for over a decade, the government accounting office has been saying that when we reach – 28 to $30 trillion in debt, we are approaching the point of bankruptcy. Well, in the month of December, it's projected for the first time in American history, we are going to set a record. The U.S. government is going to spend approximately $3 trillion. And we are just about cresting the $28 trillion amount, and before long, we'll be over 30 Look, if money grows on trees, why not give a family $1,000 or $2,000 or $5,000? Why stop at $600 for an individual? Let's give them more than that. I mean, this is just total absurdity. You cannot spend money you do not have, and if you do it long enough, something's going to break. They're either going to inflate the money or they're going to tax the people uh, if you have $100,000 you've saved in the bank your whole life, it will be worth $5,000 by the time they're done. That's where we're headed. I um, mean, we don't think this will happen, but it will happen. You cannot break the laws of God and not be broken by them. And so it's a real travesty, but it's a reflection of a nation that's in a moral free fall. Uh, when a nation is given over to a depraved mind and they begin to develop upside-down thinking, and that's really where we are at. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it is accelerating. Anyway, good question from that pastor. I appreciate it. Um, you know, use your money wisely. Churches should save for times of uh, trial, just like families should. Um, but it is a sad time in our nation and what is happening. And, uh, you know, we're giving all these monies 
not just to, you know, these evangelical and these weird Pentecostal churches with wacko Joyce Meyer doctrine, but then all these Catholic churches and Mormon churches and, you know, the cults and on and on and on it goes. And this is free money. These so-called loans, you don't really have to pay back as long as you can justify you've used it. And this is this is sad when some of these small businesses who are forced to shut, that's where the money really should have went uh, to help those people to keep their doors open because the government was forcing them not to work. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and we have a live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Merry Christmas, Dr. Brogy. Hey, Merry Christmas to you as well. Um, I have a question more about living out um, our faith, and I asked my husband this question, and he said this would be a good question to ask you. Okay. <laughs> so um, it's it's twofold. First, I, I'm around a lot of non-Christians and um, their acquaintances, and th- when they bring up things that are sinful, obviously I'm not expecting them to live a holy life since they're non-believers, but I never know how to respond. And I'll give you just a couple quick examples. I have a friend who was talking about living with her boyfriend. And then um, one time I was at a store and actually the checker at the store um, was talking about how she sold her home and bought a mobile home and is traveling around the the country with her live-in boyfriend and how it was so difficult to tell her grown children that she was doing this. Usually it's in a setting, like a group setting around in public, where it's really not appropriate to um, ask them the diagnostic questions necessarily. So I never know how to respond. That's my first question. My second question related to that is um, I work for someone, and so does a friend of mine works for someone who uses the Lord's name in vain. And I I never know what to say, and she doesn't know what to say either. So I'm just going to hang up and listen to your answer. These are really great questions. Uh, So let me respond to the first one. And sometimes in a group setting, it's not always appropriate to answer unless you have a sense that people think that your silence is condoning uh, what uh, you view the situation to be. So that's where, you know, wisdom that God is willing to give uh, needs to be sought in that moment. And God can prompt the heart accordingly as we're walking closely with him, because you never want to be in a setting where you're condoning sin. And certainly there are times when people already know where you stand and it's a non-issue. But let's take it aside from the group setting. There will be so many opportunities as we're walking with God and we're praying the prayer of Colossians 4. God, give me an open door of opportunity and not only an open open door of opportunity to share the gospel, but also clarity in sharing it. Well, part of sharing the gospel is sharing the law because the law is God's schoolmaster. It's his tutor to lead us to faith in Christ. And so you look into the mirror of the law and you see the sin of your soul. Uh, The law is like a mirror. The law was never given to justify, but to terrify, to cause us to flee to Christ. And so when you're in a setting with someone and they say, well, yeah, my kid's I'm kind of embarrassed to tell them that I'm traveling the country in my mobile home or, I mean, a trailer, I'm assuming, that you pull behind a car. Um, you know, I'm traveling the country and I'm living with my boyfriend. And and that's when wisdom would say, well, you know, I can feel how you would be embarrassed. And in one sense, you really ought to. 
because you are basically communicating to your children by your example that there's nothing wrong with this. And have you really ever considered the ultimate implications of what God says? And I might read a text to them like Ephesians 5, 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, and by the way, we'll call her Susie. Susie, that's what you are doing when you travel the country with your boyfriend, pulling this trailer behind your car, you are communicating immorality and impurity. So for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then the next verse is chilling. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so I would just say to her, you know, hey, Susie, this book is either true or it's false. And really the question and the statement you are asking, you're sharing with me today, has greater ramifications and implications. Number one, is the Bible true? Because if it's true, then what you're basically saying is, I've deceived myself, or maybe others have deceived me, or maybe the the world has deceived me because, quote-unquote, everyone's doing it. But God says in this book that his wrath comes upon unbelievers for living a lifestyle like this. And I care about you, and that's why I share this with you today. And so you're communicating, one, to your children. You either believe the Bible's true, but you refuse to believe it. Or two, you don't believe the Bible's true, that what I just read is total error. And is that really what you want to say? And not only that, but by your example, instead of being salt to preserve righteousness, instead of being light to dispel darkness, you are actually contributing potentially to the next generation's immorality by the lifestyle you're living. But by the lifestyle you are living, you are really denying that you ever have met God in a personal way. And so that's what you have to come to grips with because there are people who say they are Christians, but their lifestyle denies it. Other verses might be Galatians 5, where he says, now the deeds of this flesh, of the sinful nature are evident. And then he lists them, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those first three words right there are summarizing what this woman is doing. And the list goes on. And then he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you. Why do you warn someone? Because you care about them. Hey, honey, stay away from that railing. There's a thousand foot drop off. I don't want you to even get close. You warn people because you love people, not because you hate them, but because you love them. And so as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things, those who live this way, those who have this as their lifestyle, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's what God says. Or I might read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where again he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Again, whenever God says don't be deceived, he says that because he knows the potential to be deceived. And so what's a rationalization? It's a rational lie where we have fixed in our mind that this is okay. God doesn't really mind. He wants me to have fun, and this is a good thing I'm doing. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, 
nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Can these people be saved? Anyone can be saved. Such were some of you, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. So you pray for wisdom, and sometimes it, it is correct in a group setting without, sign, without trying to sound holier than thou and pious, just to state the truth. And the, the biggest problem in America is Christians are no longer speaking the truth in love. And we're no longer really holding up God's standard and God's righteous laws. And when that happens, the culture just goes into a further downgrade. What was the second half of her question, Rick? Read uh, it for yes. us so, so everyone can hear. Yes. She also works for an individual who um, oftentimes takes the Lord's name in vain, and she's not sure how she should deal with that. Well, you know, um, a lot of people sometimes take the Lord's name in vain almost unconsciously. Uh, Oh, my gee. Uh, Look, I've heard Christians say that, uh, especially new Christians. Why? Because it's just a habit, and it's just something that they've done forever and ever and ever. And and I remember with a, a, a relatively new Christian who was working in my yard and and I shared something with him, and he said, oh, my gee. And so that was like the third time I'd heard him say that in conversation. And so I just said to him, hey, you know, you probably don't even realize you're doing this. But when you say that, you are taking the Lord's name in vain. And God doesn't want us to do that. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, of which, you know, 80% of Americans were not able to come up with more than four though they're still written in their hearts, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So God doesn't want us to just loosely use his name. And so it's okay sometimes to say, hey, you know, Fred, I, I, you know, I work with you, I work for you, and I don't mean any disrespect, and I don't want you to think for one second that I think that I'm better than you. Anything that uh, I have that's good is an expression of God's kindness and grace to me. But, you know, you're constantly using the Lord's name in vain, and that very often indicates a spiritual issue in the heart. And one of the Ten Commandments that God said is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have you ever really thought about that before? Now, again, you know whether you're doing this on your time or the boss's time, he might say, hey, what do you, you want to get back to work? I'm sorry or whatever. But again, wisdom would dictate when it's appropriate to say it, how to say it, not to be proselytizing as he might see it uh, with the boss's time who's paying you. Uh, so you've got to seek wisdom and all things being equal. But there is a time to speak up. And again, sometimes it's that opportunity where we hold up God's law that people see their need for a Savior. Look, unless you see that you're unrighteous, you'll never come to a Savior. And that's the function of the law. Paul tells us there's a couple of verses that just come to my mind from the book of Romans. And one is found in Romans, the third chapter, where he is giving a justification of why we're saved by grace and not by works. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, we just read one of the Ten Commandments from the law, 
The law here, of course, is used beyond the Ten Commandments, but, you know, all of God's laws that are found in Scripture, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, there's a day coming when every mouth is going to be shut. He's speaking of an unbelieving world in the context. No one is going to be able to raise their hand and say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me tell you why I did what I did. No, every mouth will be shut. The written law of God and the law written in the heart, because some men have never seen the written law, but God is still able to hold them accountable because as Romans 2.15, speaking of raw pagans who've never even seen the law, never read the scriptures, uh, it tells us that the law of God has been written in their hearts so that they instinctively know the difference between right and wrong. And so Paul says the law will shut every mouth because, here's why, by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Again, one of the functions of the law is to give people a deep awareness of sin, and that's a good thing. Why? Because it shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us that we need to, you know, flee to Christ and find the forgiveness that he offers. And he echoes the same thing again in Romans 7, 7. Some would say to Paul, well, look, if, you know, you're critical of the law, we're trying to be saved by it. And Paul says, I'm not critical of the law. The law is not evil. It's a good thing. And then he asks his question in Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? Meganoita. It's uh, in Greek, it's one of the strongest uh, ways of saying absolutely not, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. So the law, in our raising the law of God, the law is not the enemy. The law is a blessing because it reveals the inner problem of the heart and the man's need to flee to Christ. So, you know, if we really care about people, your your question is really the same question. It's just two different settings. You're exposing sin through the law. You're not doing it in some, you know, holier-than-thou way. You're doing it with gentleness, but you're ready to give, you know, an answer for the hope that's within you and how God in his grace has forgiven you and changed you and brought you to Christ. So it's a great question. I appreciate it so much. Let's go to the next one. Well, Dale from Salem, Virginia writes, how should the church respond to the governor of their respective state mandating masks in church? How are believers to participate in communion with all these safety measures? I've heard some churches meeting and defying all mandates from state leaders. This all seems to be getting more and more restrictive with no relief in sight. Well, hopefully there is relief inside if this vaccination works, and there's no reason at this point to believe it won't unless God just chooses to further judge the world and allow this strain to mutate where the vaccine doesn't work against the mutation and the problem just continues. So it appears in the grace and mercy of God that we may see some relief here by June where at least 70 percent of Americans are expected to take the vaccination and they say that would be enough for herd immunity and 100 percent of Americans will have the opportunity to receive the vaccination or really plural because I guess at least the two that are out now require a two-stage process and I know there are some Christians that you know create all these conspiracy theories and 
you know, they're injecting some kind of chemical into you to control you or that it's the mark of the beast. And, you know, and add to that, you've got the no vaccine people in the Christian communities who never lived through the turmoil of uh, polio and other diseases that vaccinations, you know, were able to eradicate and medications were able to fix in our country in earlier days. Uh, But with that set aside, when we are able to obey the law without having to disobey God, then we should do everything in our power to accomplish that. Uh, We're in South Carolina this morning. I don't know where you're listening to us. Uh, This this question came from what state? Salem, Virginia. Salem, Virginia. And we've got one here from Colorado. And people listen to us in different states at WAGP.net. You can hear us anywhere in the nation 24-7. Uh, another caller here I see from uh, Rucker, Alabama, it looks like. So with that said, at least in South Carolina, we are, for the most part, very blessed, comparatively speaking, to other states. I have a brother who has a home in Vermont and in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, he's a dedicated Christian and loves to go to Utah to not only ski but to evangelize the Mormons who are out there. But Utah is in severe trouble. Uh, they're beginning to ration uh, care because their ICU units and some hospitals are full. They've got people out in the hallways on oxygen and tents outside. Same with California. And there are hot spots throughout the country now that are surfacing via Thanksgiving. And, of course, it appears right now from what the TSA reported yesterday that more people are, are traveling even now at Christmas than did at Thanksgiving and if we get another round in January, you know, there could be, you know, worse uh, places to live uh, than maybe you're at right now. But uh, it's not good for the country. With that said, whenever you can obey the law. So like when churches come down, they come down in a couple of um, stances, either, you know, no mask and no seat. Unless you wear a mask, you can't come in. Now, is a pastor wrong for doing that? Look, if that's how God's led him, then that's what he needs to do. And then you've got churches who say almost defiantly, we're not wearing masks. And I don't think that's wise because I think it has been documented that when you're exposed to a person for some period of time, and if you sit in church for an hour, an hour and a half next to a person with COVID and they don't have a mask on, there's a chance that you'll probably get COVID. You say, well, I won't die from it. Well, maybe not. You might have permanent uh, lung issues. You might have some permanent neurological issues. You might have some permanent heart issues that people in their 30s and 40s and 50s are facing, though they haven't died. Uh, If you're over 70, uh, there's a 95% survival rate. So 5% of those people with COVID die. 70 and above, so they need to be protected. So I think wisdom would dictate that you do what you can as a church. I don't know of any church in America where, unless the state has forbade them at all to meet inside, and there are states like that, Washington and Oregon, where they cannot meet inside, uh, where you cannot participate in the Lord's Supper. So I don't know of any church in America, so I don't want to create a straw man. Maybe you know of some county where they've said you can't take off the mask even to participate in the Lord's table. And that, to me, would be an issue of we're going to obey God rather than men. And I don't know of any police department that has arrested a single Christian. 
So sometimes, you know, we create these straw men, but where we can obey, we should, and we should out of love. You know, it appeared, you know, the California churches were being overly restricted. Of course, California, it's a real problem right now. I mean, it's spreading like wildfire. And I know two people in California who have gotten COVID already, and they've been very sick, and it's miserable. And I wouldn't want that on anyone. But there are healthy people, and they'll do just fine. And there are other people in California who are not doing so well. And there are churches in California where they apparently, for the most part, were not wearing masks, and now COVID is in those congregations. You say, well, so what? It's like the flu. It's more than the flu. Look, we've got more people in the hospital right now in America than any time in all of U.S. history. So you can't just say it's like the flu. It's not. And, you know, in a bad flu year, we might have sixty to 80,000 people die within 12 months. We already have over 300,000 people dead in less than 12 months, and they expect another 60,000 in, in the next 40 days. So, you know, it's not like the flu. And it's an issue of love and what God may lead a pastor to do in one church. I mean, let's just say that God puts in the heart of a pastor, no mask, no seat policy. We, we've not come there, but just let's just say God does that and leads a group of men who are elders or deacons in the church, whatever the policy might be, to express protection in that way. Maybe God sees an individual in that church that he wants to protect, and he's protecting that one individual. You think God cares enough about one person in the church? course he does. Listen, God attends the funeral of every sparrow. A sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from his notice. The hairs on your head are numbered. Uh, suppose um, an eight-year-old child dies. You say children don't die from COVID. No, that's not true. They die from COVID. Do they die often from COVID? No, but they do die from COVID. With no underlying conditions, children have died. People in their 20s have died. People in their 30s have died. You want to see COVID to the hilt, look behind the wall of the Gaza Strip. You talk about suffering. Those people are packed into there, and Israel would love to take down that wall if people would stop hurling bombs over into the Israeli communities. They just hate the Jewish people, so they're just trying to protect themselves. But you've got people right now in the Gaza Strip who are panning for breath, and they do not even have oxygen that they can give those people. That's the end result of high-density regions where the COVID is spreading rapidly. So God may see a child. He may, children are dying in the Gaza Strip because there's so many people packed in there. I follow the Israeli news very closely on a daily basis, and kids are dying there. It's not rampant like the adults, but a lot of people in their 20s and 30s are dying in the Gaza Strip. And so let's just say for the sake of argument that God is trying to protect your eight-year-old child and you're bucking against the pastor who wants a mask policy and he's trying to protect your child. You know, God's big enough to do that. So you can't judge the leadership of your church. You need to be respectful. And right now, by God's grace, there's at least an end in sight to this. And the end in sight is, you know, hopefully June. We're planning right now, by God's grace, to have Vacation Bible School. We feel like by that point, the vaccination will be 
available to people who want it, older adults who want to serve in VBS, et cetera, et cetera, and that we'll be able to have it. Now, something may change, and God may change things on us, but I think that's the direction we're moving in, and we're planning in that direction, but we'll take it one step at a time. Great question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and as you mentioned a second ago, we do have a question from Sonia at Fort Rucker, Alabama. She writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I've been watching your sermons online and have communicated with Rick Forshner about determining whether or not I can have an assurance that I will be saved. He let me know that this would be an important question to ask of you. I am a believer and pray daily. I try to live in a Christ-like manner. I'd like to know the answer to this important question. Once I'm assured of this, I want to ensure my children and husband are saved as well. I read to my children daily from their children's Bible and teach them how to pray. I thank you for your time and look forward to hearing from you or your staff. Also wanted to mention that our family will be moving to the Savannah area and would like to come to your church in Beaufort. Well, we actually have a number of families, Sonia, that come from the Savannah area on a weekly basis who are members of our church and we would welcome you if God leads you in that way. But more important right now than finding church membership would be to find salvation and to be assured of it. So my advice to you or anyone listening who's in the same boat, you're unsure whether or not you really have heaven as your home. And listen, there are some people when you ask them how sure they are on a scale of zero to 100, they'll say 100 uh, only to discover when they start reading the Scripture they're 100% wrong. It's possible to have a false assurance, but God wants us to have an assurance. I was raised in a church where it was taught us that it was a sin. It was actually classified. It was called the sin of presumption to say you know that you're going to heaven. They taught that no one could know that. And, of course, that was a logical conclusion in Roman Catholicism because they denied justification by grace alone through faith alone. So if good works indeed do help save, then no one can know, no one can have assurance. That's contrary to what the Scripture says. If Scripture alone is your authority, they get around that by saying, well, yes, Scripture is authoritative, but the Church, being the Roman Catholic Church, gave us the Bible, and the Magisterium, the teaching order of the Roman Catholic Church, alone can interpret the Scripture. Well, that's convenient, but that's not true. But the Scripture says you can know that you have eternal life, not hope, wonder, or think. So what I would suggest is that you go online and listen to, would you like to know God as your friend? And at the start of the DVD, there are two questions that are asked. One is how sure you are on a scale of 0 to 100 that you'd go to heaven. And the second question is why should God let you into heaven? You see, more than likely, you lack assurance of salvation because in the back of your mind, you're not sure you're good enough. And the fact is, is that you're not, and you never can be by anything that you do, that you need a Savior to deliver you and to impute to your account the justification that he alone can give. He wants to look at you not only just as if you had never sinned, but also just as if you had always obeyed. And for that to happen, there has to be a great exchange where you are willing through the acknowledgement of your sin to exchange your unrighteousness for the righteousness that Christ will credit to you, his own righteousness. You can become, in Paul's words, the righteousness of God in Christ. He will credit to you the righteousness of God, and that's why we're called saints once we are saved, because we are holy ones. The word hagaioi, holy ones, is what it means. God 
credits us with his own holiness through the merits of the cross. Christ, who never sinned, takes our sin and bore its full wrath and punishment. And when we come to him in faith, he credits us with his own righteousness. So the second question is, why should God let you in heaven? And I want you to stop the DVD, answer those questions, write down your answers, get your husband and children to do the same, maybe watch it together as a family, and then I want you to take your answers and I want you to put them into the mirror of the Bible that is going to be taught. And I want you to compare your explanation as to why God should let you in heaven with what you're going to hear from the Bible on that DVD. And I promise you that if you will ask God for his help, by the time you're done listening to that hour-long message, you will have assurance of salvation because you will know what genuine faith is and how to exercise it in Christ. And if you still have questions, you can call the church, 843-525-0089, ask for my secretary, Claudia, and you can set up an individual phone appointment either Skype or Gmail chat or just audio, however you're comfortable doing it. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Paula from Colorado Springs, Colorado. She writes, innocent children under the age of accountability have always paid a high price for the sins of adults. They've been sacrificed to idols. They've been aborted, starved, and unloved. I understand the root cause is sin, but the very young have no concept of God or sin. They're dependent on adults and too young to defend themselves. God does not seem to intervene on their behalf. Is it a form of mercy for God to take them to heaven? What about the little ones who don't die but suffer for a lifetime as a result of the sins of others? You know, it is tragic, Paula, when we see the suffering of people in this world, especially of little children, because they just seem like, you know, why them? And does God care and does God see it? You know, and sometimes little kids suffer because of the sins of other people and neglect abuse, a drunk driver, uh, you know, a relative that molests them, a neighbor that abuses them. And certainly we can definitively say that the suffering in those situations are a result of personal sin. There's other forms of suffering. There is suffering that comes because we live in a fallen world. And so children have been victims of natural disasters and tornadoes and cancer and all kinds of disease, and God sees all this. And so there's very different kinds of suffering that are spelled out in Scripture. There's what we call common suffering that happens because we live in a fallen world. There is what we call carnal suffering, and that's either because of, A, our own sin, which we're not primarily focusing here with kids, but, um, B, the sins of other people. And so it may look like God doesn't care, but he does. You say, why doesn't he do anything? He is. He's taking careful note of everything that is happening. Listen to what Jesus said. He's uh, addressing his disciples, and um, uh, at that time they came to Jesus, and they asked the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And let me just say parenthetically, and uh, we're doing a course on Wednesday night. It's called Basic Discipleship, and there are 21 handouts to it. We've completed four. The fifth one will begin in a little bit in mid-January on the doctrine of the Trinity and then the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
but we'll come to a section in the course, the 10 most commonly asked questions. And one of those questions deals with what appears to be unjust suffering. And we'll also address the question about what about little children who can't believe? Well, Jesus never uses an illustration that has error in it. He always uses truth to teach truth. And so Jesus can liken the kingdom of God to little children. Why? Because God doesn't hold a little child accountable for something they can't yet understand. So what happens to a little child when they die? They go to heaven. The scripture is clear on that. And we'll spend a lot of time answering that question. And those, by the way, those Wednesday night services right now, I think there are 15 sessions that are posted. And this is our discipleship course that we provide habitually for new people who are coming to faith on a weekly basis. Young man just came to Christ last week. And he came down front to confess his faith on Sunday. Uh, he's about 20 years old, my guess, and I baptize him soon and as a new believer. But if we were open on Sunday morning for uh, our adult Bible fellowships, he would be in that 45-week course because he needs to get grounded. Well, we're doing it right now online for people to take advantage of. Um, and so little children go to heaven. And then Jesus goes on and he says, whoever then humbles himself as his child He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But then he warns, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So when people willingly hurt little children, um, God has taken note and they are going to meet God. Listen, The scripture says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Jesus will go on to say, for I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who's in heaven. We speak sometimes of a guardian angel. Maybe it would be more accurate to speak of guardian angels because Jesus speaks here of angels, plural, who are watching children, singular. And that's important. And so um, all I'm saying here is that God cares about these children. The thing we need to realize is payday is someday. We're studying the book of James right now on Sunday mornings, and some people are reading through the book of James. And lady called last week with a question in James, and I don't really want to answer questions in James right now when people call in, Rick, because I'm going to answer every verse by God's grace in the next several months. So, you know, we get more questions here into the Bible line than we can answer. But it was a good question because it tells me, hey, I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm reading. And I've encouraged people to read the book once a week. It's only 108 verses. You can do it in 15 to 20 minutes and you can get through the whole book. And as you read and reread, you start thinking, well, what does that mean? Or what does this word mean? Or what's the implications of this? And when you come to chapter five, he deals with uh, the need to express patience. He He deals with those who are abusing the laborer, they come in, they get paid one day at a time as they did in that day, and the owner of the land is withholding the pay. And so he says, therefore, be patient until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. The farmer has to be patient. He puts his seed in. He can't come out 10 minutes later and say, where's my crop? It takes time. He has to wait. And, of course, in Israel, it expresses here the early and late rains and how those were so critical and such a blessing to a farmer. Well, 
again, contextually. He's saying you need to wait. These people who are ripping you off, some who are even taking you into court, as he has already highlighted, and having you put to death, God sees it. And God is someday going to fix it. And then, of course, he'll, he'll go on. He'll give an illustration with the prophets, and he'll give an illustration with Job. And that God sees it all, that payday is someday. And little children who do die, they do go to heaven. So, Paula, your conclusion is right on that. You say, at what age? We're not given an age of accountability. It's probably better to express it with a point of accountability because children can come to that realization of their sin and what Jesus did at different ages. But with that said, little children who die, they go to heaven. And little children who have been abused, God sees the abuse, and he's going to hold accountable those people who have abused them. And let me just say as well, and we have many people in our own church who can give testimony to this. I've heard their stories for decades in my office. Now as adults, telling me how they were abused or harmed as children. But listen, God says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So you may have been raised in a home or you know of people who are being raised and it just seems like they have every strike against them. No, they, that's not true. That's a false conclusion you've made. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So God sees that little child who's in the home of a prostitute whose father is a drunkard or a drug addict. And God cares about that child. And God is going to override that sin with added grace to give that child an opportunity to receive the Lord. And if they don't, it won't be God's fault. It will be because of decisions that they made as they grew into adulthood. There's dozens of people in our church family who grew up in absolutely horrible situations, and yet they know and love Christ, and they're raising their children for him today. That's what God is about. It's, It's all about his grace. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, an anonymous listener to WAGP who is living in the Savannah area has two questions. First, wants to know, how did we do on Giving Tuesday? And I'm glad to acknowledge that we actually uh, not only met, but surpassed our goal of $30,000. Amen. Uh, So we're grateful to God and to our listeners for that. Their next question is... um, It's actually starting off as more of a short story than a question. Uh, He says, I'm talking to a young Christian woman who is about to start her residency to then hopefully become a pediatrician. Uh, This is somewhat hypothetical, but if all goes well between her and I, and we feel it appropriate to be married, and she has her important position as a medical doctor, and then we have children, if this is God's will, would it be okay for me to take the role of raising the children? I would prefer to raise them instead of putting them in daycare, if at all possible. However, obviously, I am the man of the household. Well, uh, this is an important issue you're raising. And what's kind of sad is that we're living in a day where the message of the world is just basically obliterating the message of the church. And a lot of that comes back to the church because pastors are afraid to address this issue. I mean, how many pastors will stand up in these mega churches and say, listen, young women, if God blesses you with a husband and children, 
He actually wants you to stay home and to raise those children. It doesn't mean you can't earn money from your home. You can. There's illustrations of that in Scripture. But God has given you the high and holy role of raising, developing those children. And so you're walking into a setting where I, I'm assuming that you both know Christ from what you're saying. You're, you're obviously asking how we did on the share So you're concerned about the kingdom of God and the things of God. So I'm assuming you wouldn't be dating a pagan woman. But there's a good chance that she has had her mind programmed by the world. And so, you know, she wants to be a pediatrician. She is headed towards her residency, according to this email. And if she's typical, and I don't know, but she probably has $300,000 or more in loans from medical school. So in her mind, I have to, you know, pay this off. I've made a moral commitment, and she does. But the question fundamentally that needs to be asked was, was she one ever counseled from Scripture that there was a higher role that if she wanted to be married and have children, that God would have given her? And had she thought that through before she took on? And again, I'm just making this up because I don't know but there's an assumption here, the reason she is working and that you can't be the provider is because of this debt, and so she's going to pay it off. But forget it, even if she had zero debt, no debt, and she was a pediatrician, then God would call her to use those skills with her own kids. Maybe she'd be helpful to um, families in the church who couldn't afford medical care and she keeps her license up and, you know, she's able to have another mom come over with a child with an earache and, and what a blessing that would be for that family, for that young pediatrician mom without ever sacrificing her own children, but not having this full blown practice to care for that child. So what you would be doing if you pursue this relationship and it were to go down as you express it is you're doing role reversal. So you've communicated to your children role reversal and you will communicate to other families watching. Well, the so-and-so family did it and that mom works and he takes care of the kids and he's not putting them in daycare and he appears to be doing a good job with them. No, you've communicated role reversal. And there's a warmth and a tenderness that a mother brings to raising children that we don't have as men. It doesn't mean that we can't be tender like a nursing mother, as Paul uses that metaphor to the church at Thessalonica. But he also says he also had the sternness of a father. So there's, the, uh, there's a different quality that a man brings into the home as the breadwinner, as the head of the home, as the protector that the mom, that is different from the mom, and that's lost. Not only do you create a reverse model, you are, you, you're, you're basically subtracting a dimension that a woman brings in the nurturing and the raising of those children that you can't do as a dad, not to mention when they're real small, you can't nurse those little babies. I mean, there's just so much that's different. So these are things that you need to discuss and you need to talk about. And if she has her mind made up and no, you know, I'm going to be a career woman and I'm going to be a physician and 
great, you know, if you want to take care of the kids, but if you don't, I'm going to put them in daycare, and you're starting on the wrong foot. You're headed in the wrong direction. And, and listen, God doesn't unwire her when she becomes a pediatrician and goes out and works eight, ten hours a day. She is still going to have wired within her female DNA a nurturing dimension that she's going to bring home. She's still going to want her home to look a certain way. She's still going to want to provide for those children in a certain way. And what happens? She's going to do two jobs. As much as you help out and as much as you prepare ahead of time, she is still going to do two jobs. And after a while, exhaustion sets in. An exhaustion that shouldn't be there because God didn't create that exhaustion for the woman who physically is a weaker vessel, Peter tells us. And so with exhaustion, emotions are raw, people begin to argue. After a while, you're not getting along. She goes to work. She meets some fellow there who's always kind and sensitive, doesn't have to live with her, doesn't have to put up with all the challenges of raising a family. And before you know it, her heart is with another man. The marriage breaks down. Adultery sets in. There's a divorce. And this is being multiplied over and over and over again across America today. Why? Because we are ignoring God's principles. And pastors are afraid to get up and preach Titus chapter 2, which speaks of a woman as being a worker at home. We won't even touch that text. By the way, we wouldn't want to lose the ties that these women are bringing into our congregation, not to mention these pastors are many times have their own wives out there working instead of doing a tent-making ministry if that were needed, not to mention they're running daycare centers in their churches, which is sending the opposite message, not to mention they have Christian schools where they're employing moms who are putting their kids in daycare, and on and on and on the rationalization goes, and we wonder why the American family is falling apart and why, in turn, America is falling apart. A church is only as strong as its families, and a nation is only as strong as its families as well, and given enough time, that nation will dissolve. Hey, thanks for being with us today on the Bible Line. We're out of time. These are reposted later in the day if you have friends that you think would benefit from some of the questions that were asked. God bless you as you walk with Christ. Thursday night, Community Bible Church at Candlelight Service. We invite you at 530. All the details at communitybiblechurch.us. 